Welcome to the Ag Culture Podcast, where we cultivate tomorrow by inspiring agripreneurs and ag innovators through real-life global perspectives in agriculture. I'm Paul Windemaller, your host on this journey of exploration and growth. On this episode, I had the chance to chat with our guest, Alex Peterson, in person. Alex is first and foremost co-owner of Peterson Dairy in Trenton, Missouri, as well as chairman of both the U.S. Dairy Export Council and the United Dairy Industry Association. In this conversation, we discuss the importance of being engaged as a leader in agriculture, as well as the things he learned in traveling around the world, looking at dairy markets globally. But before we get into the interview, I would like to ask that if you find value in our podcast, please subscribe and share it with someone you know. We'd really appreciate it. Now, on to the interview with Alex. All right, I'm here today with Alex Peterson. Alex, where are we at today? Today we're at the National Milk Producers Federation, United Dairy Industry Association, and National Dairy Promotion and Research Board Joint Annual Meeting in Orlando, Florida. That's why I had him say that, because I never remember <laughs> that. Welcome to today's podcast. And uh, I have Alex Peterson, that is the chairman for United States Dairy Export Council. Is that correct? That's correct. I got that one right. U.S. DEC. All right, U.S. DEC. What, what other roles do you have in the industry, Alex? Uh, currently, I'm the vice chair for the United Dairy Industry Association, and I am on DFA's Central Area Council. Great, great. And you're from Central Missouri. Yeah, North Central Missouri. So Central Missouri and United Dairy Export Council, you're going global. How does a farmer from Central Missouri you say have that interest in... Global aspirations. You Tell say me about you, that. you say that like I'm the farthest farmer from any export market, which I pretty close to. You're am. probably within what five miles of that. Yeah, okay. there's a pinpoint. Uh, but exports are what drive are a major driver of demand for U.S. dairy products, which drives sales, which drives price. And even though most of my milk is going to fluid that's not leaving the state of Missouri. Exports have a huge impact on my farm's bottom line, just as it does every dairy farm in the country. So I know it rings home, so that's why it becomes important. Right, right. And right now it's what? Roughly 20% of the U.S. milk production goes overseas. Is that right? So last year we were at 18%, which uh, was would be like hitting 60 home runs. This year we're hitting like 45 home runs. We're down a little bit in 2023, but it's still a really good year and still a huge part of of where we're at, considering 20, 25 years ago, it was more like 4% of exports on a lot smaller base. Great, great. And so let's give the audience a little background. You know, in central Missouri, what's what's your story? 150 cows on a management intensive grazing dairy and dairy farm with my parents, my oldest brother and my niece. And uh, we love what we do. It's uh, not always easy. But I think dairy farming, the beauty of it is your whatever cards you're kind of dealt, and that including your management, you know, desire or how you want to run a business, 
uh, you can kind of find that, but the land dictates a lot. So I'm from, we call it the Green Hills region because it's a little too uh, rolling the hills for row crops to be dominant everywhere. So we have a lot of, a lot of beef cattle. And so we kind of embrace the grazing aspect of, of where we're from. And really, I found a really good uh, model to keep a low-cost dairy, but have pretty good production and uh, and survive, which is the name of the game. Survive in advance. Awesome. And and you're relatively young in the dairy industry, as I am. Uh, we're very, very similar in age here. And how did you get started in a, a leadership role and, and develop yourself in a career outside of just your farm in the dairy industry? So it really... Uh, took a guy named Bill Siebenborn, just a farmer from six, seven miles away, who was a, a really big leader in dairy. And he kind of came alongside me early on and said, hey, you you need to be doing this. And really, uh, it's tough to tell. There's like 18 inches of difference between a pat on the back and a kick in the butt. I'm not exactly sure That's where the encouragement was, but it was somewhere there. And, uh, and then once you kind of get started and... In this industry, when you someone sees that you have an interest in leadership, which I don't know how much of an interest I had, I just kind of showed up, and then they kind of jump on you for for opportunities if you show any kind of aptitude for it, uh, because there is a kind of a void in leadership. Our industry, I don't think, is dissimilar to a lot of other industries where there's a heavy population of you know the boomer generation, and they're at retirement age, stepping aside age, and there's kind of a a void of leadership that they're kind of leaving in their wake. And I think some of the more intentional leaders of that group did a good job of saying, Hey, who, who's on deck, who's on the bench and what do we need to do to fill that bench? So that there's not a gap in leadership. And I think I was one of those that kind of got swept up in that kind of initial, initial round. And, and because our farm is a structured a kind of a way where I can get away some that I think that's the key. A lot of people our age, you know, have families and, a budding career and it's it's tough to commit to being gone three or four days a time or two a month it's a significant commitment so what are what are some of the skills that you learned along the way or or that you look at and say wow i really need to develop this in order to to get to that next step in leadership yeah uh, communication skills uh, for sure listening and understanding i think farmers kind of have a, a tendency to have never reported to anybody other than themselves and so, I mean, you're dealing with CEOs, but CEOs with, you know, maybe a little bit of a God complex sometimes too. And I think, I think really kind of meeting them where they are and understanding where they come from and, and realizing that farmers just about all have a really good perspective on things, even though they are very different perspectives, but kind of hearing them out, understanding, and then not being afraid to assert a solution, offer a solution and have some supporting evidence to back it up. And I think there's a lot of ease that comes to a situation when a young leader steps in and can very thoughtfully ask, why, why do we do it like this? Mm-hmm. And because I don't want to change anything without fully understanding why this system's in place and you know how it functions. But when you find those out, sometimes it's very evident. It's like, oh, yeah, we, we did this because so-and-so wanted to do it. And he was crazy, but he wanted to do it. And so I think there's ways to kind of advance by just kind of asking good questions and not getting an ego about the whole thing. And I think that was something I kind of had to learn was you have to really check your ego at the door, which 
I was the youngest of three brothers on a dairy farm. I didn't have an ego uh, initially, but it, it, it got beat out of you. Right? It got beat out of me. I cried that out really early on in life. But I think that's a, that's a big part of, of of really being there to serve. And people say that all the time, but it actually takes a little effort to be okay with losing an election. It takes to okay for your idea not to. Yeah, it was just an idea. Like I didn't own it. I just offered it up, and if it works, great. And if not, fine. But I think. Kind of being there for the right reasons is a big part of, of what it takes. Yeah, no, that's a great point to, to really gain that perspective before you speak or before you open your mouth and yeah. say, this is how it needs to be. And I think as a, a young person, we can kind of uh, jump to that pretty quick. I know I'm guilty of that myself. Yeah. So it's, that's a great point. So tell us a little bit about your experience with US Deck. I know you had many travels overseas, abroad. What were some of the most impactful ones and what were some of the lessons that you learned through those trips? So growing up in the U.S., we're kind of used to like U.S. business, which is, you know, low bid with a good enough quality. That's where you're going to give your business to. A lot of the other cultures in the world is still very relational. They want they want to know who they're doing business with. They need to develop that rapport. And the degree to which that relationship is strong is the degree to which it will survive ebbs and flows in the market. And people really want to know and love and trust who they do business with. And that's not, I mean, like we live in a world where the sales rep pulls in the driveway and, you know, your blood pressure goes up five <laughs> points without even, you know, without even thinking of it. But a lot of the world, they want to meet who they're dealing, doing business with. And we have staff who are building those relationships and solving problems and making it easy to export dairy products. But farmers, whenever they show up in Dubai, or Japan or Singapore, or South Korea, they immediately become like the superstars of the thing because these companies and these consumers, what they meet where their food is actually coming from. And especially in like these big cities where the consumers are, that they, they may not have met a farmer ever and are so many generations removed that it's just so foreign to them. But they really develop it. So when we go on these, these trade missions, yeah, we meet with, USDA foreign ag service, like the US government's representation there, which they always know we're there. Mm-hmm. And it kind of helps at least them dust off their dairy notebook <laughs> a little bit. And, you know, that way they know what we call uh, the local government officials. But then we meet with chefs, is a, is a big thing what we do. Social media influencers. It's not hard to find social media influencers, and, and we're a great bait for content. So it's a win win for both of us. I mean, look, you got a podcast, so you get it. Works for us. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then meeting other farmers, too. Because it's kind of counterintuitive that we would like want far, these dairy farmers to do well. It's like that's our competition. But the best thing for dairy sales and consumption is for the local producers to have a good attitude and a good spirit and good production models. Because it's hard to sell something whenever there's a bad representation of it locally. So we can go in and we've proven that we can build the pie enough that we're going to have expanded markets and they're going to do better too. And I think Mexico is kind of like the prime example of that where they were importing like 30% of their dairy products 30 years ago. Today, they're still importing 30%, but the pie is immensely bigger and we're selling a ton more there. Their farmers are happy because... They've got a bigger chunk to eat too, which is really good. Yeah, that's a great perspective. I don't think a lot of farmers really think about that outside their their market, right? They're, 
I need to move this product outside of my market and the pie is only so big for the market and yeah. we're, we're competing, right? But, but what you're talking about is collaborating with other sectors or the same sector in other areas and being able to build that demand uh, stronger. And I think we've seen that in the U.S. Yeah. Um, as well, uh, working with other sectors, but doing that overseas with other dairy industry partners, I think that's that's a great perspective that many people don't think of. So appreciate that. And, and we're always going to be like Mexico. We're, it's always going to be hard to export fluid, right. which is always going to be the premium product. So if you can grow it, they're always going to take the fluid market first, and then we're going to supply the other things, cheese, powders, proteins. And so that it really works well for us in dairy. Have you had any other paradigm shift moments uh, on your travels overseas that you can think of that just really shifted how you think about marketing or about the dairy industry in general? Uh, how kind of cutthroat it can be out there in the world. So, you know, we, we have competitors in the world, the EU, New Zealand, a few others to some degree, but how tough it can be whenever you're facing non-tariff trade barriers, trade agreements, difference in how governments work. So U.S. Dairy Export Council, we get some funding from the, the, the people selling dairy products. There's, a, there's a, a fee to be a member. And so that money isn't checkoff money. So we can use that money for like trade policy and, and working with government relations that we can't do with checkoff funds. And so as we deal with our government their governments and other governments in the world that are always trying to help their farmers out. Um, I think I didn't realize I was pretty naive to how much is going on under the surface and how important it is to have very savvy operators uh, working hard to defend our interests and our, our opportunity to market access, which, I mean, that's the most coveted thing is if you can get market access, great. If you can get your kind of elbows out around your bowl of territory and keep everybody else out, all the better. And I think the U.S., we kind of have a stance of, hey, we just give us a fair shot. And I don't think we kind of we don't push other people out as much as some of the other parts of the world do. But uh, with a level playing field, we know that we're going to outcompete just about everybody. So but that was that was an eye opener, how ugly it can be out there in the world. <laughs> kind of a slugfest some days, yeah. huh? Mm-hmm. All right, Alex, let's go back to your farm um, and, and your career in farming. So you're, you said you're a third generation dairy farmer. Correct. So there's there's a lot of history there, right? So how does that weigh in on how you make decisions and how you run your business and how you look toward the future? Probably a lot more so than it should. <laughs> Is that the right answer? I don't know. <laughs> I'm a first generation dairyman. So. Yeah. So I, I think... I'm kind of proud of our farm and that we, even though we're third generation, each generation has had kind of their own take on it. We've had some kind of paradigm shifts in how we function. As I said, we're grazing. We didn't used to be a grazing dairy. We used to be a conventional dairy. And we kind of made a pretty big leap to switch from that. And that was kind of like dad's generational shift. And, uh, and I think, you know, conservatively, like, like I said before, you want to make sure you fully understand why we do things before you go jumping in wholesale and changing. Uh, but I think we live in a dynamic enough industry that you constantly need to be looking for ways to be more efficient, ways to be better steward, ways to be pulling up production and making the most of what you have, which is, I mean, that's agricultural 
101 is how do I do more with less because everything costs. And I mean, that's why we're some of the best uh, sustainability stories on the planet is whenever, as uh, President Kennedy said, ag is the one area where they buy everything at retail, sell everything at wholesale and pay the hauling both ways. And I think when you're in that crunch, I think you're forced to be innovative. And, and I think that is a legacy that not all farms pass down is, hey, we're all for doing whatever you got to do to be better. And, and I think we've been lucky that my brother who farms with me, mechanical engineer. So he's got that mindset. Like he is, if I put a problem in front of him, he will figure it out and make it work. I, sometimes I can't keep stuff broke for him to fix, but I'm more of like a global thinker. And You're I think obviously the PR guy, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm the, yeah, I get to be the PR guy. Yeah. He hates people, which is good. <laughs> Loves cows and hates people. Um, but I think having a good balance on who's your on who is in your farm, I think sometimes with generational farms, you end up with a carbon copy of the generation before you. Um, maybe uh, I may be reading too much into that, but I think understanding how to complement the generations before instead of imitate the generations before is is kind of the best mark forward. Yeah, it's probably one of the most inspirational things I've ever heard said about it. Generational farm complement. Yeah. But don't, what was that? Don't duplicate? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I can't remember what I said now. But yeah. Yeah. Compliment, but not imitate. Yeah. There you then, go. But not. Because uh, that's, and that's that way in business. You don't want to, if you have an expertise, you don't hire five people that are exactly like you. Right. Because that's your expertise. You hire what you don't have for a skill set. And I think, I think like good succession planning, they have to, hey, go out and do a job for four or five years and bring a skill back that we need. I think that's kind of the right mentality. What skill do we need? And we were lucky enough that our personalities were different than our parents' personalities and skill sets. And we were able to really kind of plug some holes. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Alex, what do you see as your, your legacy with your farm and your legacy in this industry? Don't screw it up. <laughs> <laughs> For which one? Both? Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, that's the, that's the burden of leadership, I think. Uh, no, so you always want to leave it better than you found it. And uh, some days it feels like I'm making good progress on one. Some days good progress on both. Some days it feels you're taking a step back. But in both cases, if you find and develop good leaders around you, and, and I, that was a lesson I kind of learned too, is you don't want to be the person that does it all. Sometimes the best thing for everybody is for you to say no. You know, I have respect for my yeses. I have to say no, or however you want to phrase it. But the best thing is to make everybody else around you better. Kind of the, you know, the Michael Jordan of things. You got to have a full team and you can't just pull all the weight yourself. Not that I'm capable of that, but that's the mentality you have to have. But as far as legacy goes, uh, I I think it's important to demonstrate that you can be a grazing dairy farmer from Missouri and have an impact on, on U.S. dairy exports. Because, I mean, that doesn't that doesn't like jive super well, you know, logically to, to most farmers. But when you really dive into it, it's it's not that big of a leap, right? And so I think the legacy is is helping farmers understand that we are we are a global market, and there are some farmers that like don't think we should export anything, you know, defies economics. But 
I think helping them understand what we do, how we do, and the value of it is is critically important. And streamlining the organizations and processes that we have. It's like anything else. When you when you add a program, add a program, add an add a committee, add an association. Uh, at some point, you need to say, "Hey, okay, these are all the things that we are doing. Here are all the things that we need to be doing. What do we need to?" roll off to another organization or what can be you know evolved out and i think the same way is true on the farm you can't just keep adding processes or uh, systems you need to figure out ways to streamline elon musk said the one of my favorite quotes from him is the biggest mistake that engineers make is optimizing a system that shouldn't exist which is so true. Like, and I find my engineering brother doing that too. Like, why are you fixing this thing that like we don't even need? And I think that's it's important that we are being deliberate on what legacies we're taking because the last thing I want is a legacy of something that that we didn't really need to begin with. Right. So that's, that's a great point. Great point. Where do you see the U.S. dairy industry going? I mean, you're you're at a lot of events. You're around a lot of the people that are. Uh, making things happen in the industry in the U.S. Uh, where do you see the industry going in the U.S. and um, where do you think exports would be going in the future? So in the U.S., I think this next generation of, of dairy farming, uh, farmer leaders, I think they've got some big decisions to make on how, where production happens. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of that's kind of like the government regulations and environmental constraints are going to be factors in that. But I think we are getting so much better at being nimble and adaptive. And, you know, that the loop of how quick innovation happens and change happens is getting so tight. I mean, things are, things are changing so fast that uh, our adaptability, I think, has been always been like the envy of, of industry. But I think we're getting so much better at that as we are better communicating. Like a podcast like this, like my grandfather, he knew what was going on at the like the feed at the feed mill at the exchange. Like those twenty farmers, he knew what was going on on their farms, and that was it. Like my parents' generation, they kind of knew what was going on in the state, maybe the Midwest through some publications and things like that. Now I know what's going on on the farm in. Hokkaido, Japan, and in France, and in New Zealand. I mean, so the world has gotten smaller. So instead of having a few farms kind of be the research farms or a few universities having research farms, every farm is a research farm now. And every farm is a station where we are learning and gathering information from. And since dairy is still like an independent industry, there's always a farm that's building a new parlor that's building a new cropping system that's working on a new feed system. And so we are one of the few areas where we're segmented enough that change and improvement is always occurring somewhere. And it's a matter of getting information and feedback back to the system. And I think we're really good about sharing successes and sharing failures, which is oftentimes way more valuable. Right, you learn more from your failures usually than your successes. And I think you, you talk about like legacy and generation, I think that's what keeps us more so than other industries from paying the tuition of having a failure. A lot of a lot of companies and businesses and professionals like 
they hit a couple of rough patches and they quit. And you do something else. I mean, take a new job, work down the street, no big deal. Work locked in a little more. And so we pay that tuition and actually learn from it and then figure out how to improve and keep going. You know, as failure, people don't really fail. They just quit at some point. And so I think we, we do a good job of maybe not quitting. And that's why we kind of push the envelope a little more. So I'm, I'm kind of excited about U.S. dairy because we're one of the few places on earth that have kind of potential to continue to grow. I mean, whether you're talking about governmental constraint, constraints, land constraints, water constraints, like we've kind of got it all and we have a lot more runway if if we elect to, to go that route. And I think we will in a lot of aspects. And I think that's the big play internationally. We talk as I segue to the export side of things. If you're a business in Dubai buying dairy products, who do you want to tie your cart with? Somebody that's going to be able to produce what you need, right? Absolutely. I mean, that's it's business 101. Yeah. And, and honestly, that's a huge selling point for us is, is uh, we will, with the slightest price signal, we will produce a crap load more milk. You know, like kind of the drop of that. And that, that, that is not the case in most of the world. So we've got the means, motive, and opportunity. And I think it's up to us to kind of continue to develop that opportunity. And, you know, the geopolitics of the world is kind of in a lot of flux right now. But at the end of the day, people will always land on nutrition as a, as a, as a pillar of, of what people need, of what governments need to provide for their people. And, and we're kind of top of that hierarchy for that. So great, great points. Since COVID, you've heard of the trend of uh, deglobalization. You know, that's been a talk for the last couple of years. Do you believe that's a real thing? Uh, do you see that uh, in your role in the U.S. Dairy Export Council? Or, or are we going to continue to plow forward like we have been over the last decade? I, I think there's a lot of industries that are deglobalizing to an extent. Uh, you know, you hear the term nearshoring, friendshoring, like, you know, uh, you're a little more strategic about where you have uh, supply supply chains and systems in place. So, so I've seen what I've seen is Mexico, for example, is kind of booming at this point. So, part of the reason we we're having a record year this year in Mexico in dairy sales is their economy is doing incredibly well because a lot of U.S. manufacturing is bringing some of that Southeast Asia manufacturing to Mexico. And they've got a huge population, 130 million people and a huge middle class, growing middle class. And that's why the, the peso is, I mean, I think it's down a little bit the last few months. But when I was there late September, the peso was up 17% on the dollar for the year. So, I mean, the really the dollar has been strong against most currencies through the world, kind of through the pandemic. and and lately but the peso has been doing really well because they've got a super strong economy with a lot of young people that are really demand generators mm -hmm. so i think if there is if there does continue to be this deglobalization nearshoring i think we're set up well for that granted i would rather keep all the markets open to the world and I, and I don't wonder if food and nutrition kind of supersedes some deglobalization. So maybe we have some level of immunity to that, but there's always going to be, you know, governmental issues getting stuff in and out. 
but that's that's why U.S. Tech works real hard to keep keep those lanes open. But no, I think there is that tendency for deglobalization when there's friction, and there's I, there's going to be more and more friction throughout the world. But uh, food is one of those things that I think kind of helps keep things tied together. Mm-hmm. And with Mexico, Mexico specifically, uh, issues at the border, agriculture is a great story to like have as background for that. It's like, yeah, there's these things going on that are issues, 100%. But there's so much food and ag that goes each way at the border that is critical for both of our economies. And we got to keep in mind the whole picture of what's going on and not just, you know, the horrible things that we see. Uh, but there is, there are a reason that our economies are so intertwined. And that's, you know, like the, I think it's like the heaviest economic border in the world because so much of what we do coincides with that. And I think it's only going to get more important. So, so you've been to uh, several places around the world. Uh, personally, what's been your favorite place that you visited and why? Uh, so I loved Japan, really enjoyed Japan and just like friendly, warm people. Tokyo, the largest city in the world is bananas. <laughs> I mean, there's people everywhere, but they love, uh, we're trying to get them to love pizza more and more. So that's a big selling point, but they're just so kind. Like, uh, they have this tradition that when like you have a meeting with somebody they like walk you out to the car and then they like stand and, and wave until you are out of sight. Well, it's like a crazy busy city. So like they're stopping, you might go 10 feet and then stop and they're just still waving, but so kind and sincere. And even when you like back out on the airplane, like they tax you out, the little guys on the ground crew, they just stand in a row and wave until your plane takes off, like kills efficiency. I would think like <laughs> it products productivity, but, uh, but no, they were really nice. And the farmers, they were, Incredible. We got to meet with some of their farmers. Just really, really cool people. Awesome. Uh, sounds like a place I want to visit. Yeah, that's <laughs> nice. So do you have any future aspirations or roles that you'd like to be in someday or, or uh, that, that interest you in the future? I would have said five or six years ago, I would have had a list of things that I like to do. But what happened was so much better than what I had planned that I'm just going to stick to doing well at where I'm able to serve now. And if opportunities come, great. And if not, great. I kind of have, I have a principle that no matter what role I'm in, the ideal is to find somebody better than me and get them into that role. And I've, I've got a couple of success stories, like even from like a local school board that I, you know, was able to get out, like serve my two terms, but found somebody way better than me to serve. And that's the best legacy that you can leave is. Not just it better off, but it better served ongoing. So just, and that's the number one rule of leaders is to make more leaders. Yeah, that's that's a great point. And something that uh, every industry needs to do in order to stay viable, right? Yeah. I would love nothing more than to stay home and milk cows all the time. (laughs) Like that's what I, that's what I really love. But all of this other things need to happen for that dream to continue. So that's, that's kind of the motivation of what we're doing. What are some of your life-defining moments you care to share? Yeah, I think so. My faith, number one. Like, if 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 I wasn't a person of integrity, not, I mean, I wouldn't be doing any of this because people would have already seen that I'm a phony. So I think integrity is number one, and that's where that stemmed from. Life-defining moments. So when I 
as far as dairy goes, when I got appointed to the National Dairy Board six years ago, kind of as relative, relatively unknown at that point. And that kind of spiraled me into the national scene and has allowed uh, kind of leadership to grow there. Life-defining. Oh, man. That's a good you question. You didn't think you were going to have to fake this no. today, did you? <laughs> no. I thought it was going to be export numbers, which you can, you know, you can off the top of your hat. What do you have for life-defining moments? Maybe I like, can copy one of yours. Oh, see, it's not as fun now. <laughs> I got them on my phone. I actually did an exercise um, back oh, probably a month ago, and I, I thought about it for probably three hours and had a list. I think there's six things. But one of my life-defining moments that I had um, was I witnessed uh, one of my uncles and a good friend of mine pass away in front of me. Hmm. Uh, and, you know, I tell that story because it was it was a hard, really hard moment in life. I was eight years old, nine years old at the time. But that really helped me understand how valuable life is and how quick it can be gone. And um, for me, that really made a big impact on the decisions that I made for my life and God put me here for a purpose, and I don't have time to, to waste to get there, right? And, and to serve that purpose out. So that's probably one of my biggest life defining moments that I've had. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, I can't top that. <laughs> that's a good one. Ah, man. No, it's been amazing the constellations of things that happen to kind of define who you are and how you function. And uh, yeah. I, I think the, the threads of relationships through life, like you were talking about uh, the gentleman uh, that, that helped you kind of get into yeah. the industry roles that you're in now, that I look back on life, those those fine threads of relationships of, of how I, you know, quote unquote, yeah. randomly met this person. And then all of a sudden that led to another relationship yeah. that led to a, a very big turning point in my life. And it sounds like you've, you've had those similar experiences. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And there's a few that are not, uh, they're not podcast worthy, but absolutely little ones where somebody, somebody saw something and instead of just being like, oh, that's cool. They actually stepped into action and said, hey, why don't you think about this? Or why don't you do this and give a little encouragement or opportunity? And I think that's something that we, we need to continue to be deliberate on. I've got uh, a friend who, I think I got it from a podcast, but he, like every night his kids, before they go to bed, he asks them, what is something somebody did for you? That, like something nice that somebody did for you today? And what's something nice you did for somebody else today? To really even just get them thinking about, oh, that was... Because sometimes we don't, we don't train ourselves to recognize. Like, oh, that was very... Like, this person went out of their way. They made an effort. And then what, what can I do to make an effort to help and support? And I think in today's society, that's not ingrained in us to like to be supportive of others and to be like, go out of our way. It's, you know, get out of my way. <laughs> it's kind of the mentality. And uh, I think that's, that's kind of the opposite of, of where dairy is going, where I want to see us go is that we are really all in this together. And the best thing for, best thing for people and dairy farmers anywhere is for dairy farmers everywhere to do well. And that takes some effort and work and looking out for each other. 10, 15 years ago, Let's uh, let's hear from the, the younger version of Alex. What uh, if you could go back to your younger version, ten or fifteen years? What advice would you have for yourself? Push yourself a little bit. It's okay to be uncomfortable. I was, I mean, I was like a homebody. I didn't want to do any. I liked the farm, and I just 
didn't have much of a worldview, didn't have much of any idea what else was going on in the world around me and not really an appetite for it. But I think just I would want to push myself to be a little more engaged and have your eyes open what goes around you. I'm like a late bloomer, like maturity as far as like, oh, there's other things going on here. And I think maybe some of that being pent up is kind of what springboarded me a little heavy into that space, uh, which is maybe maybe the best thing overall. But just to look, pay attention to what's going on around you and be a little less uh, dumb <laughs> in everything you're doing. It's amazing. Like even you look back, it seems like every point in life I could look back like two or three years and be like, what an idiot. Like, how did you not like see this or understand this? And I think that's kind of like, that's the like quest for knowledge and, and like personal growth that you have to have. But I think I've been so fortunate that even when I was kind of a moron in a lot of aspects, that there were people that, whether they're just being nice or maybe they saw something, whatever, really kind of put their shoulder, hand on my shoulder and be like, hey, you know, there's, here's an opportunity, there's an opportunity. And it's not, it's not that nobody wants to do that stuff, but sometimes people have to be encouraged to step up. And it's, it's easy to be the person that just does what you love and not anything else, but to understand that what you love is, is solely determined on a lot of other things happening at the same time. So you just uh, mentioned personal growth. I know you're a pretty well-read person. What have you been reading lately? What what books have uh, really sparked some interest in you? David Ambrose about Eisenhower. That book was incredibly good. And then I had a had a friend who was looking out for me, trying to do something nice. Recommended uh, meditations, Marcus Aurelius, like ten years ago, and I just started like two weeks ago. Very good. Very good. I'll put those on my list. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, and it's kind of just like proverbs, essentially, yeah. like just his the wisdom that he claimed, but like on leadership and on uh, kind of seeing people and understanding people and learning from people, and then just kind of self discipline. Very good. Very good. Well, Alex, I really appreciate your time today and being on the podcast and sharing your wisdom and your roles in the industry and really appreciate what you do for the dairy industry in the U.S. So thank you very much for being here today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Paul. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks again to Alex for taking the time out of his busy schedule at the conference to have a conversation with us. Check out the show notes and connect with Alex and what he is doing as a young leader in the dairy industry on a global scale. Also, please check us out at agculturepodcast.com. And until next time, stay curious.